Hi everyone and welcome to episode 9 of the Two Sporting Muppets. I'm here with my co-host Gray. How have you been this week mate? Very well, thanks Greg. Very well, just lapping up more sport as usual. Good to hear. It's getting to that exciting time of the year, particularly in the football codes in Australia here. We're getting to the serious end of the season. I know we'll be diving into that in a few minutes. Christmas, it's basically Christmas time for sporting It certainly sporting is. Freaks, isn't yeah, it? it really is. And what we'll be talking about, Greg, obviously, the, as you just mentioned, the footy seasons, getting close to that business end of the season, but also, as always, lots happening around the world in sport. Even people who love sport like ourselves still get knocked out by how much there is always going on. There's never really a downtime. No, I was thinking about this the other day. Remember, after the cricket, uh, sorry, the footy season, late September, October, remember about when we were younger, 20-odd years ago, you'd have that couple of weeks, nearly a month in October, where there was just nothing happening. And you, it would just seem to drag on. It was always my most hated time of the year between the grand final and what used to be the start of the cricket season. It was it was terrible. And I, I know myself as a basketball fan, the actual basketball, the Australian Basketball League, is now scheduled to start one week after the grand finals. So right, so straight no, into it. They're, they're actually scheduled to go straight into it. And I think A-League, the soccer's pretty similar in their dates as well. So you There's know, no downtime. No one downtime week now at all. Yeah, and straight into those, you know, what we consider our summer sports, the soccer and the basketball and then into the cricket as well. So just, no downtime anymore at all. No, that's the sporting landscape. Um, before we start, Greg, mentioned last week, or we had our first special guest, Andy, and thanks, Andy, for your great insight to Manchester United. I was just thinking what a club they are. Think of the players we didn't even mention who play for that club. I was, I was just quickly thinking the other day. David Beckham, Roy Keane, Teddy Sheringham. I was just doing a quick think there. Like, <laughs> just such a strong club. But, yeah, there's uh, Rude Van Nistelrooy. Like, 20-odd <laughs> absolute champion players that we didn't even discuss. They've certainly been a magnet for football royalty oh, over the years. Remarkable. But not, not presently. They didn't start well, did they? But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. Anyway, looking forward to a good chat. So, if you don't mind, Greg, we'll start with the NRL. Go for it. Kick us off. Now, big week in the National Rugby League, on and off the field. Well, what is it about the NRL that's always off the field? Oh, they cannot get it right. Anyway, go on, mate. Go on. All right. We're not where we'll start. I guess we'll start with that, off the field. Look, probably two major stories. The grand final, the debate about where the grand final is going to be played, and also Kalen Ponga. So with the grand final, just going through it briefly, so argument or wasn't it? it was over because there's a contract with Homebush for about 20 years to play the grand finals out at the Olympic Stadium. But then if that was subject to funding to redevelop the stadium into a rectangular venue, wasn't it? Yeah, so they'd committed or signed a contract, the grand, NRL grand final, say in Sydney, as you said, at Homebush, which was the Olympic Stadium, on the proviso that the government invested, I think, around $800 million to upgrade it and turn it into a proper rectangular Sporting field. And due to the fact that um, New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet said that that funding would not be happening or be withdrawn, then Peter Valendis, the chair of this commission, no, I'm not sure his official role is, what <laughs> what it's called, but the head honcho basically said, well, we'll be taking the grand final away then, most yeah. probably the Brisbane. He basically said, now our contract with you is null and void with no stadium upgrades, so let's put it out and 
No, he basically played Brisbane against Sydney to see what would happen. Yeah. So a couple of days that that went on. Look, me personally, Greg, I was a bit annoyed. I didn't know why any of that had to be played out publicly. I thought Perrottet and Valandis could have could have discussed that with their you know with their um, minions and got something sorted. But the result is it will be played this year in Sydney. But that rec- Sydney having it you know locked in. Is not happening. They're looking at now a super Super Bowl type, you know, bidding system where it can be shared around or you know whoever wants wants to to have it. It's interesting, and I'm not opposed to it at all. But really, when you think about it, there's only so many venues in Australia that could host it. So when they say putting it out, it's not like the US where you've got 50 states and multiple stadiums within some of those states bidding to host the Super Bowl. You know, you've got one grand. When you look at you know, they're making money out of it, so you've got to look at capacity. Uh, so yeah, you've got one ground in Queensland at Suncorp, one in Sydney with Acor, a couple in Melbourne, one in Adelaide and one in Perth. Basically, they're the grounds you're looking at. So, yes, it's bidding, but you're only talking possibly, you know, six or seven grounds that are capable of holding the the, the, um, the crowd that would be needed to make money out of it. Mm. The best. Someone suggested a model I like the sound of was perhaps like a three or four year cycle. So every two years, like two years running Sydney, and every third year, it could be go somewhere else. Something like that, I think, would make would make sense rather than you know going around every year. Look, I think the only reason it stays in Sydney is tradition. You know, it's where the you know, and you talked about in your history with South, where rugby league started it as a professional sport, was Sydney-based. It, it developed in Queensland as well. Um, it slowly developed in the other southern states in Australia, but they are very much AFL states and NRL secondary, let's be honest. Yep. Um, that said, those other states, Melbourne, South Australia and Perth, have, or Adelaide and Perth, have very successfully hosted state of origin games. So it, it has shown that if you get really high-quality rugby league, then those non-traditional rugby league crowds will turn up and pack the stadium so the potential to move the grand final around and still be successful is definitely there yeah and the look the players certainly don't mind where it's played and they're professionals and they've shown with the origins that people from the eastern states are willing to travel yeah that's, yep. that's right it, I, no there's certainly that out of those ticket sales queensland and new south wales supporters will travel to those other states to watch their teams there's no doubt about it yeah so well, for now, it's because only six weeks away and they needed to get a decision because people needed to know where it was being played. So it is in Sydney, out at the Olympic Stadium, or Acor, what's it called? Acor Stadium. Acor Stadium. Yeah. But next year, it could be going anywhere. Now, the other major thing, Greg, we spoke about, Caitlin, the poor old Newcastle can't take a trick at the moment. They are struggling on and now off the field as well. So for those unaware, star player who's out at the moment due to concussion issues, Kalen Ponga, and teammate Kurt Mann were filmed leaving a – or asked to leave and walking out of a cubicle, so the same cubicle, together, um, I think bourbons in hand, in an establishment in Newcastle on the weekend. And lots of statements and spin and silliness has sort of came from that. Yeah, I, I'm not all. I, I'm aware of the story. I'm not all over, you know, why they were there, what they were doing there. The bit I did read, which I found probably the most interesting, you know, personal time can do what he likes as far as I'm concerned. But as club captain, 
the team was actually playing while these guys were out on the drink. Yeah, that's not... So I read. So that's the bit I don't kind of get, you know. He is by far the highest paid player within that club, um, has been named club captain, and up until now, been a bit squeaky clean and done a good job. But from my understanding is the Knights are actually playing and when when this was taking place. So I don't think that's a great look for someone who should be leading the way within the club. No, no. And, and as you said, the club captain. Look... <laughs> I heard, I was just on the radio and I agreed with Mark Geyer. MG was saying, and MG would know, he's been there, done that. Look, the more you try and fib your way, spin it, the worse it gets. It'll just go away if you just be honest, man up and say, this is what we're doing. You know, and it will have con- could have consequences. If they were snorting coke, just say, yep, we're wrong, we made a mistake, this is what we did, take the bands that come with it and get on with it. The more they just tr- yeah, try and fabricate and you know, lie. Well, not lie. Not saying they're lying, but you know what I mean. Sort of try, try and get you know, like at school, trying to get out of trouble. I think the deeper the hole, they're going going to dig. One thing I will say though, Paul Peter Parr, you know, who's been at the Cowboys and manages the Origin team, just moved to Newcastle. I think he was recruited to try and sort out the the um, shit show down there, <laughs> and. Yes, so in two weeks, I had the David Clemmer thing, and now this. So Peter is certainly welcome to Newcastle, Yeah, I was going to say, what a great introduction to Newcastle. Well, it can't get much worse. Look, unresolved, NRL was saying that both were drug-tested. Look, the results of that won't be made public with the three-strike system, unless there were third strike. So look, I'll just sum it up. Say, not a good look. Worsening Newcastle needs, and yeah, just... Silly, silly, silly behaviour. Look, I know people say, oh, you know, scumbags who video this. Yeah, shouldn't be done, but I don't buy that. If it, It's part of our world, the mobile phones. They know when they go out that that could happen. Yeah, I agree. And I also agree with your comment. Put your hand up. Whatever you did, be honest, and then cop it on the chin and move forward. The sooner that happens, move forward. to be better for themselves and better for the club. Yeah, you know, and regardless... Of- of what it is, it's not you know life life threatening. Okay, not good if it if it was drug related, or if it's you know Kurt 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 and Kurt and I um <laughs> got a lot of time for each other. Or look, and what they said could be true. One of them was crook, and he was just checking he was okay. Could could even be that. But yeah, just be honest, boys, so everyone can move on. Now, on team, oh, sorry, on field stuff, Greg. The most important things of all. So last night, it was a cracking game. Penrith and Souths, last year's grand finalist, which Penrith won. I think the final score it was 22-all with a couple of minutes to go. I think 26-22, Penrith scored scored a late try. A really cracking match. But what it has done, it's wrapped up the minor premiership for the Panthers. So they've moved to 40 points. They can't be caught now. The nearest team's the Cowboys on 32. So 34 if they win this weekend. So... Yeah, nice and safe for them. So congratulations to Penrith. Now, so the ladder is starting to be more settled in terms of the eight. So on eighth is the Roosters on 26 points. Raiders are ninth on 24. So the Raiders can force their way in, depending on results. But then the nearest is, is Manly and the Dragons on 20 points. And even if they win every game, they're for and against. It's, it's not as good. So Yeah, I know we talked a week or two ago that there's still... And we always love that term, mathematical chance they can make it. Yeah. And we both have a laugh at that. 
but both Manly and, Dra- and the Dragons haven't won a game, I think, since then or have lost both games. So they are out of the eight. It comes down to the Roosters and the Raiders. Yeah, they had games I had to win and, and couldn't manage it. And I agree. Once you start talking mathematically possible, it's, it's all over Red Rover. But you know, all hope, I guess, is what they feed off. And just lastly, on the NRLW starts, starts this weekend. Now, the NRLW is expanding to 10 teams, but that starts next year. So this is the old model. Um, they had a, a short season earlier in the year, and now this is the second instalment of that. So six teams, um, Newcastle having a team, and they're predicted to go okay. Um, star player Millie Boyle has joined the team, plus a, a couple of other handy players. So it'll be interesting to see how the NRLW pans out. But this, the timing of it is great. So they're playing the same time the finals are around. The rugby league interest is at its highest. So hopefully they you know, piggyback some games and a lot of media attention and, and promote it and head in the same direction. I think the AFLW has done a fantastic job over the last few years of promoting it. And I hope the NRLW follows the same line, particularly as it grows and expands next year and into future years. But it'll be great to see the 10 teams next year, I think. But really excited to see how it goes and we'll be tuning in for many of those NRLW games. For sure. And just on the ladder, just looking back, so what's up for now, obviously, is where they finish. So top four being you know, a much wanted place because it gives you that double chance or that chance. The way the final system works, that yeah, you get the two cracks at it if you're in the top four. Yeah, so look, the Storm are on 30 points. Rabideau's on 28. So you know, any of those teams can still crack the top four. So really exciting um, this week and then two rounds to go. Yeah. Greg, we'll move on to the, the AFL. Lots happening in AFL land. Now, just this morning, it's been a, now, look, it's been a big week and a bit of silliness. Alistair Clarkson about where he's been linked to both Essendon and North Melbourne, where he's going to be coaching. And, you know, Kevin Sheedy brought in. You know, he, he didn't impress the North Melbourne people, making a dig that, well, maybe Clarko could coach them and they could move to Tasmania, which didn't impress the Shimbona faithful. Um, but, all the specula- media speculation and that is, is now over, as Alistair Clarkson has confirmed, or North Melbourne have confirmed, that they've secured Alistair Clarkson's services for the next five years. Good for the AFL, and as you said, it was a bit of a distraction in the AFL, and I'm, as it's moved to finals, certainly engaging with the AFL again, but a lot of the media this week was not about the teams around the coaching. What is it with five-year contracts and coaches, but with, and we'll go back to NRL there for a second, oh, we've with got that, yes. Cameron Seraldo being named as the Bulldogs, Kennedy Bankstown Bulldogs coach for the next five years, it seems that five years is the going rate for a professional coach in the codes in, in Australia. That said, they seem to break the contract when it suits them as well from a club's point of view. Stole my thunder, mate. I was about to say, uh, interesting in, in a time where the contracts get broken so easily. So I guess that's why they do them because at the end of the day, they don't mean that much. Yeah, sorry, AFL fans. Just skipping back while you mentioned it. Yeah, Cameron Sorrell, um signed for Canterbury for five years. Rugby league's worst kept secret, I think. I, you know, but he was muted and shown around the West Tigers earlier on. I don't. Think, he was never. He was never a chance to go there. I didn't think. I think it was just more out of politeness and for the code. You know, if he just said from the outset, "Don't want to know about the Tigers," it wouldn't have been a good look for the club. How could they attract anyone? So I think he did. Personally, I think he did a good. He did the right thing by the NRL. And showed respect. But he was always going to the Bulldogs, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I think he's got a background relationship there with Phil Gould, who's now at the Bulldogs, uh, and I think that really helps secure his services. By all accounts, you know, very much sought after coach and very well respected as the next next best yeah. thing in the coaching circles. So. And he would want to be the five year deal, like you said, never coach. Like he might have, he's done a couple of games just as you know, interim or just taking over when Ivan Cleary was was unable to. But yeah, but still untried at the top level. So a lot of pressure going into a club that's not always been its best in the background. As you said, taking on your first first coaching gig. So a lot of pressure on him, but he was well very much sought yeah. after Look, by other clubs. So But you get a vibe, don't you? And the same vibe I got with with Fitzgibbon, with Craig Fitzgibbon. Gun you can just sharkies, tell, yeah. I know something about their demeanour and that you can just tell. And yeah, I think he's a real deal as well. Right? Apologies, AFL fans, back back to you. So yeah, Clarko has signed finally with North Melbourne. Look, five year deal, but look, four time premiership coach, outstanding credentials. I think it's fantastic for AFL, as you said, Greg, and obviously North Melbourne securing their future. Look, I know they're a club that's always muted as moving. For those who aren't aware of the AFL, very traditional club, but very inner, like lots of clubs, inner Melbourne, the north suburbs of Melbourne, close to the city there, but really great history, Not, but not a huge supporter base, not a huge membership base, um, financially have, str- have struggled for a long time. So hopefully, and being muted as possibly relocating to, to Tasmania. I know that's been on the agenda for a while. Tasmania's pushing hard to get a team and have done for a while. And one of the solutions, is, as you said, keeps popping its head up is the transferring or moving North Melbourne to Tasmania. So, yeah, But I think having a name like Clarkson at the head and, and locking in for five years... Surely that's positive for the club going forward and in terms of attracting quality players. Yeah, for sure. And it has to be. But that said, clubs are having issues. Just attracting a good coach doesn't always guarantee success, i.e. Michael Malthouse at Carlton. So, you know, if a team's a total basket case, it, the coach, you know, the best coach going sometimes can't do anything. I'm not saying North Melbourne fit are in that basket, but... You know, it, it is something that can happen. But I, yeah, I just think it's it, it's good for the game. Yeah, I think it sounds good on the surface, as I said. And on North Melbourne had struggled lately, so I think it's a positive step for them moving forward. And also just briefly, look, Essendon, because Clarkson was rumoured, it was either going to be Essendon or North Melbourne, so not Essendon. So Essendon are a club, you know, very, I think they're even now. I was, I might have even over, overtaken Collingwood or Carlton as the most premierships. So really strong club and really, you know, great history, but really struggling on the field. So you know, the future for the Bombers. You know, I don't mean like they're going to be around. We're not in danger mm. of, of folding, but yeah, just in terms of success, how that's going to to look for them. I'm not up with it, Gray. But do you know what other coaches are and the around available? Essen might look at now. Look, the best or one of the most highly credentialed coaches on, around is Ross Lyon still. You know, former Saint, former St. Kilda Fremantle coach amongst other clubs. Look, hi, highly regarded. Prickly figure, must be said at times. But yeah, his name has been has been mentioned, plus one or two others. So, you know, look, and Kevin Sheedy is associated, you know, he's I think he's still on the board sheets. Great Essendon man. So They'll sort something out, I'm sure. Because GWS being the other position, the other club 
that need that looking to appoint a coach. Mm. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Look, now on the field last week, Swans versus Collingwood, which was Collingwood on their eleven game winning streak, finally came to an end at the hands of the Swannies. Look, pretty solid game. Swans always always seem to be on top. Just right in the last quarter, it did look like Collingwood were making a bit of a charge going through the centre of the ground. It's interesting watching it. As a Swan supporter, it's hard to take those red and white goggles off. Like, they're 30 behind, and Collingwood were making a run and taking a few risks, and the commentators were like, as if, because of the risks they're taking, they're gonna, as if they're going to win or something. Like, hang on. <laughs> but anyway, didn't come to pass. The, the Swannies were victorious, which means the Swans are now in second spot. Collingwood, I think, a fourth. I'll just actually have a look at the ladder. But I will say this. A lot of Sydney, the Sydney media and Sydney supporters are getting excited. And we are a premiership, Fred. I'm not saying we're not. But I think we're getting a little bit carried away. A lot of young players, the Swans can still be quite inconsistent. And I don't think there's any guarantee that, you know, it's a matter of going down to Melbourne and, and you know, taking <laughs> taking care of all and sundry. So I guess what I'm saying is, yep, I want them to do well. Hopefully they do. But I think cause of, you know, very huge chance of winning their premiership just because they beat Collingwood at home at the SCG might be a little bit over the top. Yeah, maybe jumping the gun a bit. But it's good to see the Swannies being so successful again. And they've certainly put themselves in a position for the end of the season to be there or thereabouts. And I think that's great. They're, they're, they're a young team, as you said, but my, they've still got some experience to support that, and I think they've got a pretty good balance at the moment. They do. They certainly do. Look, and to bounce back so quickly, you know, rebuilding years, two or three years ago, but I think it's also a message, if you know a club's rebuilding, just having faith. Like, I'll never talk of, well, I don't think I heard any of Longmire being sacked. It was just a case a couple of years ago, the club was rebuilding. And so he took ownership of that, and, and now they're, they're bearing the rewards of that. Yeah, I, you know, I think they drafted well. They've attracted good young players. They've stayed loyal to their coach. So the culture has continued, as you said. And and now they're paying dividends fairly quick turnaround. Yeah, so so well well done to them. But also well done to other teams making the eight. Now, this probably the most dramatic thing that happened was Carlton versus Melbourne, where Carlton, if Carlton won, they would have secured a final spot. Been in there last week. They skipped in front. I think they were, were they one point in front or five points in front? And I was only like 30, 40 seconds to go. And so Carlton, it looked like that's it, finals. And as good teams do, Melbourne just got the ball down the other end and slipped through a goal with about 10 seconds left on the clock. And so that was it. So not only Carlton lost a game, now, no guarantee. Now, they have to win this week to make the finals, and they're playing Collingwood. Two absolute rivals. It's a good way to finish the season. A lot, lot on the game for both clubs. Yeah. Look, and as a AFL supporter, I wouldn't be genuine. So AFL people who are listening, I'm not going to say, yeah, I don't mind. Kind of hate them. Carlton and Collingwood, they're my two most hated clubs and throw Essendon into that mix. And look, but I'm sure you appreciate me being honest because it's... Because, you know, Sydney Swan supporters and former supporters of other clubs. I was a Fitzroy supporter back in the day. It's just the way we are. But having, so I enjoyed it. It was, but I did feel for the Carlton fans. After what, 
nearly 15 years of absolute misery just to have their heart pulled out like that. The narcissist, or not what I'm looking for, the, what's that German word? Schadenfreude for pleasure and the unfortunate um, suffering from others. But it was a bit of that. But I did feel it must have been gut, gut-wrenching. But anyway, that's what it is. So Carlton played Collingwood. They're predicting 80,000 80, at the MCG this weekend. And yeah, may the best team win. So if Collingwood win, well, Collingwood making the finals regardless, but Collingwood could potentially finish second still. But if Carlton win, they will, they will be in the eight. We, As you said, and, and like you, don't love them, but feel for the supporters for years and years of misery and missing out and be right on the cusp. That 10 seconds was destroying for them, I'm sure, last week. So and, interesting to see what happens to them this week. Am I right in saying this is the last round of the AFL, last regular season? It is, uh, last, last round regular, regular season, season round. Look, it's really interesting. So Geelong on 68, minor premiership, sealed up. So we've got these teams on 60 points. So we've got Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Collingwood. And in that order, because of the percentage, the higher for and against. So all those teams that they win could finish second, as high as second, as low as fifth, or even sixth. Fremantle on 58, then eight points down to Richmond, and then Carlton on 48. And Western Bulldogs on 44. So the Western Bulldogs have need a miracle. But yes, Carlton just need to win to guarantee it. Okay. spot so really exciting times is it is it still the case that afl have a week off between the last four last normal round and the finals beginning i believe they do and I'm, look i'm not, not going to get into it but wtf don't quite understand it so i was hoping you should could shed some light no. but whatever look i i believe the fans hate it too like why would you everyone's just champing at the bit for the finals um and to, look the t- the teams who make the finals for the players any player that's carrying, and let's face it, professional footballers this time of year, they're all carrying. Everyone's carrying medals. injury, no doubt. Yeah, you know, a week to get that sorted would be would be heavenly. But apart from that, you know, talk about giving your your rivals a head a leg up. That excitement, enthusiasm, just why destroy it for a week? When, as you said, it's like Christmas for football fans at the moment, and then they just have a, a week of nothing. It just Seems crazy to me, but as you said, if it's for the players to recover and if they give that extra week to make the finals that more exciting, then okay, maybe that's the position they're coming from. Yeah, look, one thing it does, it might do, I'm not totally sure, but bush footy, because that's about the time where most a lot of bush football grand finals are held. So maybe for that sort of thing, it could help help with that. But yeah, I just think it's ridiculous. But anyway, but and last thing, look, of the Collingwood Swans game. It was interesting to see, to see John Longmire made a comment just about Jack Ginevan, the Collingwood player, who duck. Look, he gets booed a lot because he ducks his head and looking for free kicks. Some many argue, and just yeah, the horse John Longmire just said, you know, booing any player, it's pretty ordinary stuff. Um, you know, like you said, not comparing it to Adam Goods, a, a different thing because it this. With Ginevan, it's not racially related or cannot be perceived that way. But still, it's not a good look. So, yeah, I think well done, John Longmire, for, for mentioning it, that he doesn't condone it in any way, shape or form. It's good. All right, so AFL fans really looking forward to this week. And then, yeah, let's go with the finals. It's it's up for grabs. No, I, 
no one's, you know, Geelong are playing well, but you know, no one's a guarantee of, you know, it's not like a, a one-horse race for the Premiership. No, it's not clear-cut at all. And as I said, I'm not a huge AFL fan, but tune in this time of year and, and ready for the finals myself. But as you said, it's not clear-cut and there's no one that's really sticking the head up, standing out as outright favourite. So that just makes better final series. Yeah, no, bring it on. Now, looking at some other sports, Greg. So Rugby Union. Look, we haven't talked a lot about Union, but the Wallabies, unfortunately, in their two-test series against the Pumas over in Argentina, yeah, they got pretty soundly beaten. Which is a shame because we mentioned a couple of weeks ago how they'd played quite well against against England. Yes, they did. When England yeah. were here and we made comment they actually beat England. And, and, you know, after a few years of not being at their best, they looked like they were turning around and starting to head in the right direction. And then they, as you said, they got smashed last weekend by Argentina, play, admittedly playing in Argentina, but they wasn't close. It wasn't close at all. No, a little bit disappointing. Look, they have their they have their spring tour, or spring tour of the UK. They normally do each year, so a chance there to get some you know some things in place. But yeah, a little bit a little bit disappointing. But look, the Wallabies hopefully they'll bounce back. Well, one thing though, as someone that's not a huge rugby fan any stretch there seems to always be the old names being dragged into it like I saw James O'Connor being recorded and then dropped again and um, what's his name I can't think of his name the Queensland not Kirtley Bill um, Quade Cooper Quade Cooper those sort of players it's yeah I don't know whether it they're not just willing to f- give young blokes a go or or what what the problem is but as I said I'm not I'm not qualified enough to comment any further but Wallabies, we just, you know, hopefully, because this one thing I will say about Rugby Union fans, they're very passionate. Very passionate. And with Australia hosting the next Rugby World Cup, it's, you know, Wallabies' best interest to get their house in order and start developing that culture again of success they had years ago. And the potential's there. It's still a popular sport and a, and a bit like Rugby League in the northern states, in New South Wales and Queensland particularly. They do struggle with depth because... Some of their players do get poached off to rugby league yep. at early age, and I think that's come back to haunt them a little bit. But hopefully they've got that World Cup dangling there and they want to perform well in, on Australian soil while that's hosted, while we're hosting in the next couple of years. So that should be motivation enough to get the house in order and start moving forward. Yeah, which ho- ho- hopefully they will. for the And just for the Rara fans who, as we mentioned, they yeah, they, they're really passionate and, you know, and they, they spend a lot of money. Like the Wallabies, I know they're not cheap to go to a test match. And, you know, win or lose, they they fork out their money and they give the Wallabies nothing but 100% support. So hopefully things can improve. And we, we mentioned the EPL previously. Man United were flogged 4-0 by Brentford last weekend. Is that Was that the opening round of the EPL? Second round. Second it round. Was. Second or third round. Not a great start, let's be honest. No, not a great start. And, you know, all the other teams in the media in England have had a field day. All sorts of memes and and stuff about it. Even um, Brentford. I think it's actually Rod Stewart's old club back might, in the day. I think you could be right. Yeah, but look, ho- hopefully, man, you know, you know, it's such a big club, they'll turn things around. Serena Williams. We might have mentioned this in the last pod, Greg, but U- US Open will be her last her last tournament. Yeah, she's announced retirement after the US Open coming up. Um, and not, unfortunately, not not playing particularly well at the moment. Well, she's had such a long time out with you know, injury and the rest of it. 
and has obviously decided that to finish on home soil with her home grand slam was the way to go. But you're right, lead up's not ideal for her. I hope she gets. She's a brilliant player and has been, you know, what she's added to the women's game. Or sorry, that's not fair. The game in general of tennis is unbelievable. So I hope she goes out on a high and does perform really well at the U.S. Open. Yeah, big be, be, be nice, wouldn't it, to go out to go out that way, as you you alluded to. But I think now she's just more balanced in her life. You know, having you know having a daughter and. And all that. I think family's taken a lot of tension, and as you said, the balance, her priorities have changed, you know, and family plays a much bigger part in her life than it once did, and that there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a criticism, any way, shape, or form. And and she's been absolute legend of the of the game. And I, as I said, I just hope she finishes on a high when she does finish up in the upcoming U.S. Open. Yeah, and whether she does or not, I guess finish, you know, the results wise, she'll certainly be sent off in a, in a way fitting. Yeah, at Flushing Meadows, the the US crowd will will certainly will won't let her leave feeling unappreciated. I wouldn't think so. Right now, last thing we wanted to have a chat about, Greg, is cricket. They released the future tours program, okay, for Australian cricket or world cricket, and just looking at Fox Sports, insane, in, insane schedule is the word that they used, and tend to agree with them. What do you think? It was interesting that, well, it's clearly a change. For many years, the 50-over game has taken up a lot of the, the Australian summer. And as I, I guess not just Australian summer, but globally in the cricket world, that 50-over game took up a lot of the schedule, but it's being really reduced, particularly here in Australia, which is being overtaken by test matches and 2020 T20 cricket. But even that, there's a priority for Australia playing tests against India and England over that time period. Yeah, I applaud that one. Like India and India are like the benchmark now, and we weren't playing enough tests. You know, a three-test series or four tests when we go over there, four tests fine, but three, it's sort of you want a bit more. It, it's not worthy of the opponents that India and Australia are now in in the world cricket. My only issue. And I know you're going to go into the schedule a bit more. I guess my issue is playing devil's advocate. If we're only, if the best teams only play the best teams, how do the next rung down develop? If they're not, you can only compete against you compete against. But if you're the next rung down and the South Africans and Pakistan's Sri Lanka, if you're not playing regularly against those top three, which is England, Australia, and India, how do you develop to that standard? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, and. I, I don't know because you can't, can you? You've got to play against the best. And I know and, it's a regularly. commercial decision because uh, I mean, you and I are cricket nuffies that go every year and it costs a lot of money and they're not going to get the crowd if you're seeing a dis- huge disparity against ability, but then the ability is not going to get any closer if they don't get the opportunity to play. It's a it's a bit of a vicious cycle. I don't know the answer. So, yeah. No, you're right. And just playing against lower-tiered countries all the time, you know, you might become a better team within that. You know, sort of standard or echelon, but not, not, not getting to the top level or not playing enough against the top teams. It's not going to happen, is it? But just looking, Greg. So, well, as we know, it's the T Twenty World Cup in November, October, November, here in Australia. So we have some uh, West Indies in England are playing some lead-up matches against Australia, getting ready for. Th- I think they're still they're official T Twenties, like international T Twenties, but in the lead-up. Uh, also, we're playing England. In some one dayers, as I said, not many of the one dayers. December, January, we have two tests against the West Indies and three tests and three ODIs against South Africa. Look, which 
is okay. I think three against South Africa is is okay. Could could have been four maybe, but South Africa a bit of a rebuilding stage at the moment. They have been really strong over the years. They're a bit their their international team is rebuilding a bit at the moment. But I think three tests is appropriate for South Africa. And February, March, Australia Test Tour of India, four tests. So back to the subcontinent, third time in 12 months. Yeah, spending a lot of time there at the moment. Which I don't think is a bad thing. No, I think it's good. I agree with and you. They, and they, yeah, I really like watching watching them. I've got the IPLs on as usual. So they've they put a win, window in for the IPL. June, July, and then, then the Ashes. So the Ashes Tour of England, five tests and a few ODIs. Tradition, so five tests. Is, it's been five tests now, what, for the last 20 years? It really doesn't matter what level England or Australia are playing at. It's always going to be five tests. I don't think that will change. No. And particularly, and over there, always competitive. England, you know, different conditions. The very, ball hoops around. Very different. A lot of Australian batsmen particularly struggle with the swing and the ball moving around so much in England. Always good competition over there, actually. Yeah, always. Always good to watch. And look, as much as we criticise English weather... They don't lose a lot of days. They don't get. I can't recall a test match being abandoned due to the bad weather. No, they miss some sessions. But I agree with you. In in the recent few years, we've been really into it. I can't think of a game being abandoned either. So, if you're an English person listening, go get a raincoat because next summer it's going to be wet. After us giving that little <laughs> that a bit of credit to the English weather, um, and after that, yeah, and then and then we just go to South Africa for some white ball cricket. So. As we know, not our favourite format. And then, though, but the reason we're doing that, October, November, as if there's not enough, the ODI World Cup in India. Which will be interesting in the fact that as there's less and less played on touring matches to see if the World Cup continues in the 50-over format. Yeah, after this World Cup, I'll be interested. Because is there any point playing it just to have a World Cup every four years? No. Because we'll put it this way, though. If they didn't have a World Cup, no one would be playing it. Would there be any matches? Yeah, so I guess they're trying to keep it alive through that. Um, I know we spoke about this the other week with certain things, but it's a bit like in Moneyball, isn't it? When Brad Pitt says, you know, telling a player, letting a player go, do you um, do you want a bullet in the head or, you know, a thousand cuts and bleed to death? I think they're, they're doing their thousand cuts where maybe it, it could be just a... Uh, <laughs> Bullet to the head. Pull the pin and get over and done with. Yeah. But look, I'm not, not saying it has to happen quite yet, but you know, I think, yeah, in the not too distant future. With the growth of T20, I don't know if three formats is sustainable. And I know the players talk about injury and their commitment to play three formats. And I know in England, Ben Stokes just retired from the 50 over team at 31 years old. Got to be the first to go. Like I know, I I don't know how David Warner plays all three formats. Well, he struggled with injuries lately too, so that that could be could have an impact on that. But I think you're right. With the growth of T20 and popularity of it in around the cricket world, and so many T20 competitions taking place, I, that's not going anywhere. It's it's a huge money maker. No, like for, it, I love it. It's a huge money maker for the cricket organisation, so it's not going anywhere. The Test matches have tradition. And and are supported well, particularly in England, Australia, and India. I'm not sure, you know, if you went to the West Indies, what they get at a crowded Test match. Let's be honest. Yeah, not huge. I know Africa get pretty ordinary crowds. So it it, it will probably be maintained on those three, 
three leading countries, but probably not so much on the others. But T20 is not going anywhere. How do you fit 50 over cricket in the calendar? And then you, you're juggling schedules and injuries. So the time has come maybe to look forward and see, does it have a place anymore? Yeah, definitely. Definitely that difficult discussion needs to be had in the not too distant future. But look, great for us cricket lovers. Plenty in the next six or 12 months. A huge, huge year ahead. Not just here, but all around the world to follow the cricket. So yeah, really, it is exciting times. And I actually like the Future Tours idea where they announce the tours years in yep. advance and you can see what's coming. I think that's really good for the game. Yeah, and good and good for everyone. I guess for selectors particularly. They can say, okay, tours, are we developing the players for this? And you know who the players I should be looking for? types of players of getting in yeah no it it makes sense oh i think it's a great strategy which in cricket admin is not always the case not always the case <laughs> which i guess is why i mentioned it yeah no so so well done to the to the um well i guess it's the icc isn't it it is the icc so, yep so well done icc all right greg well we could even talk about more sport but i think we had a we're pretty much out of time but as always thanks to the review please stick around though because we're going to have a bit of a look at the history doing Souths two weeks ago only fitting to do their major rivals their bitter rivals heading into a bit of a history wrap of the Roosters are we? Yep another foundation team but we're going going to have a look at the Roosters or the Eastern Eastern Suburbs or officially the Eastern Suburbs District Rugby League Football Club Looking forward to it Now for our history little history lesson Greg for today as promised we're having a look at in the NRL, the National Rugby League, the history of the Sydney Roosters, the team currently known as the Sydney Roosters, previously known as Eastern Suburbs. Now, bitter rivals of the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Look, very popular team, but also quite a malign team. What's your opinion or history or whatever with the Roosters? Never have loved the Roosters, but I do respect their success and I do respect them as an organisation. They're for many years been nearly the benchmark in the way league teams are organised and run. And I think I do respect that, which has brought success for them as well. They've attracted amazing players. They attract great coaches. They're extremely well run. Their interpretation of the salary cap is sometimes <laughs> joked about. Oh, that and is often such a referred diplom- to as the salary sombrero. That is a very diplomatic way of saying it, Greg. Well said. I'm just saying great management. I'm not here to throw aspersions, so just saying very good management and accounting understanding. Well said. Well said. All right, so the history of the Roosters. So they were established at the Paddington Town Hall in a meeting January 24th, 1908, one of the very first teams, if not the first, which, you know, it's just a, literally, you just if you just roll a ball down the hill, you, you're at the stadium or the SCG. So very, very local to that to that area. Look, they were to represent, as they started, they were districts. So Eastern Suburbs represented Paddington, Wallara, Bondi, and believe it or not, Watson's Bay and Vaucluse. Actually, people who played rugby league back in those days. Double Bay as well. So that, that whole district, hence Eastern Suburbs. Their colours, known as the tricolours, red, white and blue, which I must say, you know, if you were looking at teams just for their strip, one of the best strips. I agree with that. Standout. Always has been. And I do like they don't modify theirs a lot. They have stuck to the the traditional tricolour with the 
red and white V on a dark blue jersey, and I think it always looks really good. Yeah, it does. You can't you can't you can't fault them for that. Now their their success, fifteen premierships, and fifteen times the same number runner ups, and five wooden spoons. So what is it now? Nearly one hundred and twenty years, only five spoons. That's that's not a bad effort. Now, something their supporters are very proud of, they're the only team that has played in every premiership year. So because the, the Rabbitohs were you know, excluded for that short amount of time, so the only club that's been in every single one. So <laughs> that's that's pretty impressive. Look, some of their, another little bits of their history, well, their first premiership, they, they played in the first premiership we mentioned when we did Souths in 1908, losing that game. You know, starting off that great rivalry with the Rabbitohs, won their first premiership in 1911 under with Daly Messenger, their star player, and the first team to win a hat trick of premierships a couple of years. I think it was 11 to 14. So you know, success came pretty early for them, just like the Rabbitohs. Now, just some other little statistics on them. So I mentioned that their ground or Sydney Sports Ground originally, which was then knocked down and became the Sydney Football's, Football Stadium. So they've always played in that part of Sydney and spent a lot of time. When they weren't there, they were at the SCG, also in match of the, match of, of the day and those sorts of things. Also, just some winners, prestigious winners of things. So Rothman's medalists, Kevin Juni, I think it was about 1970, Kevin Jenny used to have a sports store across the road from the Cock and Bull there at Bondi Junction, so very eastern suburbs. Uh, Kevin Hastings, or Horry Hastings, affectionately known, who is also the father of Jackson, who currently plays with the Tigers. Michael Eden, who also played for Manly, amongst other teams. He was a very handy player. I think he spent some lives down Albury Way now. And Brad Fittler, very well known to anyone that follows the route, anyone in rugby league. Um Dally M medals, Gary Freeman in the early 90s, Todd Carney, 2010, and James Tedesco a couple of years ago. Look, yeah, Teddy, absolute superstar. And Clive Churchill medalists. We have Craig Fitzgibbon and Luke Keary a few years ago. So um, one's a coach now and one's still playing. So, you know, some some very well-known players. Um, any of those players are in? Resonate with you, Greg, or just any well, any Roosters teams or any you know Roosters memories you have? Look, it's funny one play, and I don't know why this play was a favourite of mine because I'm not the two teams he played for. I don't like, but as a growing up, always followed Bob Fulton. You like you like, and Fulton? I don't know why because I can't stand Seagulls and I don't like the Roosters. But that was a player I always followed. Always wanted his football card, so I guess that's a player that in. You know, my juniors following rugby league that I always admired, although I didn't play for teams I supported. Just one of those anomalies, I guess. Oh, he was a superstar, wasn't he? He was a superstar. Absolute superstar. Um, look, just in terms of a few golden periods, we talk about, you know, and there's so many good players have played well, in rugby league in general, but for the Roosters. So I mentioned they were the first to have a hat trick of premierships. Another golden time was 1935 to 1937. Three premierships. Dave Brown, who's another legend of the game, who we'll talk about in more detail hopefully one day. Um, you've probably seen photos of him. He was he he had alpecia, I think, so he lost his hair at a very young age. Um, but he was an absolute superstar. In the forties, 
They were quite strong. Now I've got a little story. Years ago, I worked in a bank up at Rose Bay in Sydney and a lovely customer, Dick Dunn, and one we used to talk footy. And he says, yeah, he said, it was near grand final time. He goes, yeah, yeah 1945 grand final. I, um, I, I scored nearly all the points for the Roosters. I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, good one, mate. And then did some research and like star player of the day and the 19 points out of 22 was Mr. Dick Dunn. And he was just a lovely bloke. You know, so former Roosters player. I think he was an administrator in the Australian Rugby League and at the Roosters, former coach, just champion bloke. But yeah, little connection there. 1966 was a well-known season. Did not win a game. So they went through 1966 winless and lots of supporters remember that. In 1967, Jack Gibson came on board and they made the finals. So they went from winless to winning, uh, not winning, but making the finals the next year. I guess for those non-rugby league fans, Jack Gibson's probably considered the very first super coach. Absolutely. And he was, so he really turned them around. Look, they got another golden period and this for South fans is all part of it because they got the checkbook out and bought some champion South Sydney players. But 1974 and 1975, back-to-back premierships, that was with Jack Gibson and Arthur Beetson as captain. And they also had Ron Coote, Elwyn Walters, and I was trying to think of the f- another star South player who, you know, they, they poached, for want of a better word, but they were champion team. And they were the last team until very recently to win, until the Roosters did it again, 2018 and 19, to win back-to-back premierships. And so that record, what, 30, 40 years, that held for. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Bob Fulton. Okay, Bob Fulton. I'm not sure if Fulton was actually there when they won those premierships, though. I think he could have been up, but they lured him for Manly for a couple of years as a captain coach sort of thing. And then early, mid-80s, early 90s, was the Transit Lounge days where they'll uh, debacle really. For whatever reason, they sign players who would just get big money and do nothing. And, you know, hence the Transit Lounge. You'd go there for big money, chill out for a few years and move on. And I must say, early 90s, I mentioned working in, in Rose Bay. I lived in that part of Sydney for about five years. Great part of the world. But unfortunately, I mustn't have brought good luck because that was their worst period so all the time i lived there there was they were bad and i was really disappointed really hardcore supporters around bondi in that area but a lot of fair weather supporters like i guess it's a lot of teams are like that but yeah no not huge identity in the community i didn't think but i guess because they were going so bad off the field but what they did do is they turned it around. They started to realise to get their act together. I think a lot of it had to do with Nick Politis, you know, getting more involved with the club. They started buying, you know, they bought Gary Freeman, Nigel Gaffey from the Raiders who were successful. And it all started from there. And then they signed Brad Fittler in the Super League wartime and onwards and upwards. And ever since then, as you've said, you know, very well managed, um, not creative use of the salary cap, shall we say, Ian Schubert from the NRL, you know, who also worked at the NRL and a former champion player. Um, yeah, what 
a lot of people criticise that. My way of thinking, I don't know what you think, Greg, is it's you can't beat them, join them. I don't mean that by anything um, out of the rules. I mean, I think more clubs should learn how the Roosters do it. I totally agree with you. I mean, they've been audited, they've been looked at because it is a standing joke, but clearly they're doing everything by the rules. So I think the other clubs need to have a deep dive look at, at what the Roosters do and how they do it so well and and copy the model for themselves rather than criticise, get in there and use it for them to their own advantage. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so all that on board, they got their house in order. They were a huge team in the early 2000s, won the one premiership, 2002, but it was their first in, what, nearly 30 years. So that was, you know, and it was a great match. I was actually at that game against the Warriors. It was, yeah, just a good grand final and a, a good victory. Brad Fittler, sort of the end of his career. And then, look, another golden period. They've been really competitive ever since. Uh, made that grand final 2010, and they won again. I think it was about 2012. Then, most significantly, or recently, the back-to-backs in 2018 and 19. And, you know, in the modern game, it proved, because so many good teams tried and failed, Brisbane Broncos, champion teams, you know, um, a few others couldn't do it, but the Roosters finally cracked it. And after that game, for those who remember, I'm sure most listeners do, against Canberra, how how exhausted those Roosters players were after that game. It was just, you know, back-to-back is extremely difficult, and they managed, managed to pull it off. Look, I think it's not just the physical, it's the mental strain it takes to be at that performing that level week in week out for two years in a row and you're right they were flat out literally at the end of that second grand final and it, you know it showed the effort physically and mentally they'd put in to make that such a success they did it, and it was yeah awesome to watch disappointing for the Raiders obviously who had their chances very contentious six again ruling and all that but yeah you couldn't could not take it away from the Roosters look something I didn't mention I forgot importantly a few other achievements was most games, Mitch Orbison, I think it's about 304, but a few very close to him is Luke Rickardson, who's a very popular player in a local junior for the Roosters, which I'll mention something about that in a minute, and also Anthony Minocello. They're around, around the 300 mark. Um, so most tries for the Roosters, look, a famous, well-known Winger, um, I know Bill Mullins, Brett Mullinson's father. He held the record for a while, 104. But now Anthony Minocello, 139. And then Sean Kenny Dow, 121. And current player Daniel Tupo, 117. So a few good try scorers. And probably just alluding to juniors. The current, now because the Eastern Suburbs District, which I spoke about, has shrunk in terms of rugby league playing, um, you know, Pannington was traditional. It was working class then. But now, as it's, the area has become more gentrified and not, there is still working class, you know, people in, around that area, but nowhere near a significant um, amount of the population. And therefore, their junior base to draw from has just shrunk significantly. Um, still around, though, like the old one, I mentioned Luke Rickardson from Bondi, but at the moment... Victor, the inflictor, Victor Radley from Clovelly. But yeah, they've had, and once again, well-managed. They've become a development club where they where they get a lot of youth fairly early. I know there was a big debate between Gallon and Gould the other night on Channel 9, but 
they do they get hold of juniors 15 16 years of old of age and and develop them and they choose they seem to pick the right players the the scouts are obviously good they invest well in the players they get to the club and they keep them so they they obviously treat their players really well and the facilities they have i think are top notch top level they're they're well supported off the field and i think you know that as you said they they don't have a, a, a large local support of um, junior base to draw from, but they've made up for it in attracting players from other areas and made it a, a place players want to play. And that's very important, isn't it? Players wanting to go there, <laughs> that's half the battle. Uh, look, they are maligned in two ways in terms of they're a silver tail club, just like Manly were, but more so. And they do get a lot of fair weather supporters, people around the traps that when they all crap, you never ever showed an interest but all of a sudden become Roosters supporters look and also locally at their games you know there's a, a joke back in the 90s and early 2000s they would announce their crowd at about five, 6,000 and they reckon they were lucky to be 2,000 there so you know lots of su- people who claim to be supporters and and there are plenty of them I know many of them but don't always get huge sort of attendances at their games which is what they're maligned for as well but they're highly successful. Look, they're doing well. You know, they're in the eight this year and they'll continue as well. Not just in the eight, but playing really well this year. Very well. Really, you know, come, really come good in the second half of the season. Yeah, great coaching, good players. Um, look, just very briefly, we'll just mention a couple of players, but we'd love to hear from our listeners. Like, who is your, Who are some of your favourite Roosters players and best players in your opinion? You know, we could be here all day. You know, things like Hugh McGarn from the 80s, who was a great captain. You know, the modern players, you know, Tedesco, uh, Maria Hargraves. You know, obviously Boyd Courtney recently retired, but just such a list. So I reckon we'll we'll give it a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, Greg, the next podcast to have a look at some of the uh, champion players from that club. I think think that's a great idea because it's a very long list. Yeah, very, very long. Yes. So anyway, I hope the Roosters supporters... Some would say, all five of you, but no, won't be like that. I remember once, though, very quickly, me and a mate were at a game, and they're not hard to fire up, Rooster supporters, but we weren't actually firing them up. We said to them, we turned around and said to them, you guys aren't true Rooster supporters. And they quite rightly said, what? You know, they got quite, what are you talking about? We said, you're here. You're here at the game watching. And they laughed, so... <laughs> That's just, you know, there's that sort of club. But, hey, success, you know, there's nothing wrong with being successful. At the end of the day, it's what it's what it's all about. So, you know, kudos to, to the Roosters. But, yeah, so that's a short history of the, of the Roosters. Been around since day one, 1908. And continue, continue to be around and, and doing very, very well. All right. Thanks, Gray, for that history trip down Roosters Lane and a bit of information around the Sydney Roosters. As you said, Foundation Club was really interesting. And I wasn't aware, and it made sense, but the only club that's actually competed in every season. And that hadn't clicked with me because the Rabbitohs were knocked out for that one season. Yeah, and the and the Roosters emblem. Oh, we're not going to talk about that now, but you know, debate about whether that was from the French rugby you know, teams, the red, white and blue, but also the fact the, the rooster is their symbol, but also eastern suburbs, sunrises in the east. It, mate, 
It'll all make sense. Interesting. Anyway, it brings us to the last section of our pod for this week. We're going to have a bit of a quick chat around stadiums and responsibility for building stadiums and cost of stadiums. And it's a bit current here in New South Wales and Australia. Uh, and we thought we'd take a bit of a deep dive and have a, have a chat about, you know, stadiums and... Yeah, very topical. Very topical. So a bit of background. The NRL, the National Rugby League, and the state government had an agreement. The state government was going to upgrade the old Olympic Stadium, which were, which has been multi-purpose, but reconfigure it to a, a proper traditional rectangular field, basically for rugby league, rugby union, and soccer, and build a brand new stadium or demolish an old and rebuild a stadium in the eastern suburbs at Moore Park, which I'll get into because I have quite strong feelings yes. about that stadium. Demolish an existing functioning stadium, stadium. not upgrade it, completely demolish it and build a brand new yep. one of about the same size and then refurbish the Olympic Stadium. They have now rebuilt the stadium in the eastern suburbs of Moore Park, which is about to be reopened. Yep. Um, or opened because yep. so they demolished the old Sydney football stadium and rebuilt it. And but they have pulled out of redeveloping Olympic Stadium and that's maintaining it as it is. There's a feeling in rugby league, and I guess this is where it differs for from AFL that they still use suburban boutique grounds. And should we be investing in those or should we go to the AFL model, which basically in Melbourne only has the two grounds, the MCG and Marvel Stadium. And then outside that in Victoria, Geelong have their home ground, yep. which I don't know the name of, but... GMBH. Which has been Whatever. redeveloped itself and looks like a quite a nice ground. Yeah. They do use that for cricket, I know, in the summer as well. Yep. But it looks like a great regional stadium. Yeah, and they're just redoing the... You can see on the coverage, they're redoing the last part behind one of the ends and it'll be done it'll be it'll be a great stadium great stadium. so victoria has the the three three made afl stadiums but only two within melbourne yep. whereas new south wales is really stuck to the suburban ground model where you know your team the tigers play out of about three home grounds four home grounds i get confused oh, six or seven some years um, my team the dragons play out of two home shared between two home yep. grounds you've got the cronulla sharks with their home ground in cronulla manly have their home ground over there manly there is word that Penrith will get a brand new thirty-five thousand seat stadium. Yeah, that, that that is planned. Well, almost you know, end of this year was going to happen, but whether it will, because um, politically based, wasn't it? The the member there, Stuart Ayres, was the sports minister, and it's also a marginal seat. Um, but some people are saying they'll be very surprised if if that goes ahead. It is a bit contentious, given that Parramatta just has a brand new stadium. Beautiful stadium, mind you. Built there at Parramatta, about a 35,000-seat stadium as well. And Penrith, Parramatta, not that far apart. So, But but also the fact that Penrith, there's no one else play, would play out of there. Like, you know, Campbelltown has the A-League playing there now, the MacArthur Bulls. Um, Western Sydney Warriors at Combank, plus other clubs who play there. But Penrith would solely be for the Penrith Rugby League. It does seem quite a major investment for one rugby league team. And I guess that's my my point of this deep dive is, should the state government be building and investing in these boutique grounds for basically a professional sports organisation or should it be their responsibility to develop and maintain grounds in, in align with the clubs that use them? And I, look, I do have strong feelings about the redevelopment of the, the football stadium 
which is referred to as Allianz Stadium at Moore Park. It's about a 50,000-seat stadium, which my issue with it is that I'm not sure why it's there in the fact that it's not a big enough stadium for major events like the Grand Final or State of Origin. It, that will always go to the biggest stadium at Homebush. But it's way too big for weekly club rugby league and the Roosters will be the main yep. tenant there. Well, you know, the Roosters, your, your bathtub's too big for Roosters' home And, home and as Gray mentioned, not traditionally well-supported live. Um, the New South Wales Waratahs Rugby League, a rugby union side will use it, but again... Yep. We'll very rarely get 50,000 yep. people for Sydney it. Sydney FC, Sydney maybe, FC maybe in the derby against game, the Wanderers. Maybe when they play the Wanderers, they might get 40,000, 50,000, but that would only be twice, once or twice a season. So I'm not sure why the major investment in a ground in the eastern suburbs was ever made and not that money used to redevelop what is actually more central to the growing Sydney, which is Homebush, and turn that into a really state-of-the-art rectangular modern field my other issue is why did they they built the new stadium why does it not have a roof i concur greg not the roof thing like those great stadiums in the u.s was it sofi in the in the um la like it's such a different experience if you can go knowing the weather is not going to affect your experience or the the actual playing what annoys me immensely is you get these people and people in the media who say oh no it's all part of it you know it's a winner sport you, you know get in there in the rain and these are people that commentate from their um glassed in boxes air-conditioned weatherproof boxes who say that so that's a that's a null argument it's a, now supposedly this new one at the stadium at Allianz is every every seat is covered but Look, I think that's technically, if you use a right angle, that every seat yes. is undercover. There's going to be plenty of rain, rain blowing blows in. in as an angle. Yep. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. You, you're going to get wet, and, and I agree with you. You know, the codes charge top dollar for supporters to attend. It's not a cheap day out. No, not at all. And I just don't understand why you invest in a world class stadium with all the best facilities and had the opportunity to design it with a roof. And they didn't. And and Victoria has shown how successful that's been with Marvel Stadium. It's about 60,000-seat stadium. Yeah, yeah, high 50s, I think. And it has a roof. And it's fan- I have been there. We've been there ourselves. Yep. It's fantastic facility. Close it up when it's pouring rain. Yep, everyone's happy. You know, they've played cricket there under the roof. So, again, you don't lose games. You get the crowd in. Everyone's more comfortable. I just do not understand the lack of roof. No, either do I. I, I don't get that. Some, I know people disagree and say, like I just mentioned, or it's an unnecessary cost, but I just think, you know, modern times, it, if you can go, you know, if you're a family, will we go or not? It's pouring rain. How often do you go, no, nah, I'm not going to bother? So if you go, if you've got a roof, you don't have to worry. You know, one of the great things about your favourite sport, basketball, is you know every, whenever you're going that <laughs> you're gonna be you're gonna be yeah. dry. Something's got to be said for that. Yeah. And I just, as I said, I don't understand the stadium in the first place because I'm not really sure what it's catering to. And again, if you're going to build it, fair enough, but put a roof on it in this day and age. Put a roof on it. Seriously, it's crazy. 
I guess that brings us back to you know the the bigger question: whose responsibility is to build these stadiums and maintain them? Is it a state? Is it a government? You know, issue to to build and maintain as infrastructure, or is it really up to the the organisation and the clubs, as in in the NRL or the NRL yeah. and A League working together for a joint to, thing to develop and build the stadiums? I, I wonder though, Greg, in terms of the clubs. Isn't it? Because the cost of state, it, it's an immense cost. It is. And if you're not a rugby league supporter but a taxpayer, do you really want to see yeah. your, your dollars going to a football stadium? Good argument. And you could say, you know, is that really what it's for? And, and there's so many other sports out there. You, you, you know, you look at your netballers or your rowers or, you know, you could list any number of sports that would love the sort of facilities rugby league and I guess on the back of that A-League, but they're not tracking the dollars. It's the rugby league that's yep. providing the rectangular fields that the the soccer can then go and utilise. But why are state government prioritising a private professional league subsidising it, basically, let's be honest, by paying for the stadium, subsidising the league? Yeah. No, and I, I think it's a really good point. And I would love to know what also the listeners think. Because yeah, it's... And what... And I guess, like, if you talk about it from a business model, any investment, you're looking for a return. What what are the returns? Well, I think the way it's so fractured in New South Wales with all the suburban grounds, there's not a return. You know, you, you, you don't really rent the ground out for any other events, be it other sports or concerts or, you know, it's minimal health and they get used for anything else. Yeah. And, and the grounds we're talking about, some aren't used in summer at all because – they don't have an A-League team to support them. No. It's not. And I think Penrith is a perfect example. Yep. Yeah, Penrith is a good example. You could argue also for Brookvale. I think, look, Brookvale is like a council thing. Like you can literally, any member of the public can go and walk their dog on it sort of thing when it's not being used for football. But that said, yeah, to how you could expect a government just to come and, you know, take care of the to basically finance rebuilding or upgrading is yeah i'm just not sure no i think there's got to be a better balance i you know maybe some government funding because it is yeah. you know investment in infrastructure within the community but solely government i don't think so and i think the NR, nrl you know let's be honest had enough money in its coffers to buy a pub and promote that not long ago so it's got some money up there in brisbane so and turn yes. into an nrl themed pub so they have got money to buy property yeah, well, it seems that way. But I guess a couple of years ago, they have dropped the ball a bit, haven't they? The, the AFL built, I think Channel 7 were involved early days, but the AFL owns Marvel. Well, a pity the NRL didn't have the foresight and the, the nous to do something like that 20 years ago. And, and then they could control it and have exactly what they wanted as opposed to, you know, having to negotiate and, and maybe not get exactly what they want, but something better than nothing and all the rest of it. So... Yeah, maybe some better planning on part of the NRL in terms of their finances and their own investments could have been better placed moving forwards. Yeah, look, I think so as well. And it probably leads to a debate for another day, but also about, and, and what is better? What do fans prefer? Do they prefer the Melbourne model where it's a couple of grounds and everyone's comfortable travelling to watch their team there? Look, Melbourne geographically is a little bit more like you know circular, Thing, whereas Sydney's a bit bizarre, where the city is on the coast and, and that sort of thing. But, or do they prefer, I know there are some people in, in the AFL circles who 
think, oh, how good was it back in the day when you could see the, you know, Collingwood at Victoria Park or St Kilda at the Junction or Moorabbin, that sort of thing. But they overall, they seem comfortable. Marvel's been there for over 20 years. MCG is loved, just totally much loved by everyone down there. They're happy enough to, to go there to see their teams play. Um, you know, it's very tribal, the rugby league, particularly in Sydney. Would would they be happy, the supporters, to go to, you know, Homebush or Sydney every week? Or, you know, would they miss, would that sort of separate that fanatical tribalism thing with, you know, and a lot of people would lament that would that would be a shame to lose that. So I just wonder, yeah, how that could work. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, there is that rugby league cultural aspect of the supporter base and where they're prepared to go. You've also got, you know, in my case, the St George Illawarra Dragons that are basically representing two areas, the southern parts of Sydney and then the Wollongong area, and they have two home grounds and a split between. And if, you know, they're forced to play out of Homebush or Sydney Football Stadium, I, I don't think... You know, I don't think the whole Wollongong base would be travelling up all the time to Sydney and I feel they. W- I think from a Wollongong perspective where I live, they would feel the club didn't represent them as a community anymore. So. Yeah. And that, yeah, good point. And same with my club, the Tigers, you know, based in Campbelltown and sort of Concord, Leichhardt, Balmain area. Um, it would be, and particularly southwest Sydney, you know, it's a lot of working class people who they couldn't have... A lot of them couldn't afford to be going into the city or into Homebush every you know every second week to watch their team, so that would you know, that'd be difficult as well. So you might see a drop off of crowds, but you'd have better facilities when you got there. So yeah, look, you could argue the way it is works that you know like team like the Tigers play half a dozen games at Combank, three at Campbelltown, and that. But I, in the long run, I don't think that's sustainable either, because then it's identity wise, well. Where are they? You know, what is the true area that that club yeah, represents? Yeah, I, I do think the Tigers struggle, and I think it is a bit fragmented. And you know better than I because you're actually a member and do support them, but spread across so many grounds. The Dragons at least are only across two, and they're quite the the two grounds are settled in those two communities, being Jubilee, Cogger, and then Wind Stadium down here, right in the middle of Wollongong. So they're right in the centre of that that traditional supporter base of those two communities that they represent now. But yeah, going forward, do we invest in you know do we invest in these smaller grounds, state government wise, or is it up to the clubs? I guess is the question. And love your feedback out there. Yeah, be, be interesting. Um, if you've got any opinions, we Gray and I both would love to hear them. So email us at two sporting muppets at gmail dot com. That's number two sporting muppets at gmail dot com. Would love to hear your feedback around your notion of you know centralized stadium model like Victoria has, or the more fragmented suburban based grounds like we have here in New South Wales love to hear your responses well Greg I think that just about does it for this week I think we're coming to the end of the pod for this week it's great to catch up again this week as always episode episode 9 as we tend to say now look make sure you enjoy your weekend and get out and hopefully support some some quality sport be it professional or you know suburban junior whatever it might be hopefully your your team wins and we look forward to to your company next week. Thanks again, Gray. See you soon. Bye.